Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking to an actual rock legend, Johnny Marr, who has a quite excellent solo album out called Call the Comet. He also has an autobiography that's a couple years old. With his permission, we'll talk a little bit about that because it's a great book. It is still your life, even if it's a couple years old. Yeah. Uh, but welcome. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. People like to say you were a, a gun for hire, which isn't your favorite phrase, but you were doing a lot of different things. Your phone, mm. it seems like it never stopped ringing from the moment you the Smiths ended. Reading your book, it's like the phone just <laughs> went from one thing to another. Or is that an illusion? Was there ever a time when things were fallow and quiet and you wondered what you were doing next? No, I, don't, I don't think so. So, you know, my phone didn't really need to ring for the, I guess, for the four years that I was with Modest Mouse. So it wasn't like every day my phone was constantly <laughs> ringing. But, right. but now I, I got to be a guitar player making records and playing shows with, you know, luckily for me, pretty much my favorite musicians. So it's kind of been like, uh, an amazing uh, sort of trajectory, if that's the right word, and journey, say, okay, what you mentioned about the journeyman thing and the uh, gun for hire and all that, I mean, for a start off, that is, even in 1978, that phrase was so worn out. 79, you know, for a journalist to use the phrase gun for hire, I mean, really? Is it like, 19, are we talking about the Doobie Brothers or something? <laughs> so, so I don't really, you know, I never really wanted to engage with that kind of rhetoric. But I think maybe 30 years on, People kind of understand my MO now, really, which is just kind of plain and simple, being a musician, wanting to work with interesting people on interesting projects, you know, with some hopefully interesting outcomes that would hopefully stand the test of time. And um, I think the the was a really beautiful and um, important part of my sort of post-Smith's career that has, that has done that. I stood the test of time. There's a, a few electronic songs, certainly, that um, I would have hated to have missed working on. And then the, the list goes on and on. There's plenty of things with the Pet Shop Boys that I would hate to have missed out on and I would have really not wanted to miss out on doing some of the film work that I've done with Hans Zimmer and the stuff that I'm continuing to do, really. So all makes total sense to me. And I feel very fortunate to be doing that you know it's like for a guitar player it seems like the, i've had the best job in the world this album as with all your solo stuff is so well produced and you're the co-producer on it you've done some producing but i'm surprised that that hadn't been a big focus of your career because i, I think that you would have been incredible at thanks that. i made a deliberate decision to turn down loads of production offers loss because um being a producer is such a a massive emotional investment if you are doing it right and in a way you almost you know being a nice person you almost put more responsibility on yourself for artists particularly young artists than you would on your own records i mm. tend to be a little you know i don't know just matter of fact about my own records i enjoy the art of production and a lot of what i do and what one of the things that I, I learned over the early years of my career was arrangements you know what i do technically this might be getting a little too muso but one of the things i learned and what i was working on even before the smiths really with these experiments i was making with putting guitars on tape was arranging mm. i was fascinated with the way these glam rock records were made when i was a little child basically and how they were all put together i really love that and you know, it's one of the things that I think I'm good at, but I just out and out turned down a load of producing and still do because uh, I would care about it like it was my own record and in some ways care about it more than it was my own record because you're the protector of 
other people's dreams, hopes and dreams, so you better not mess it up. And um, it just is is uh, not worth it for me, really, because there's other things that I need to be putting my time into. So it, it was really that that made me make that decision. What's your bug from uh, the new album? Just, yeah, from the very beginning of The Smiths, it, it's clear that you heard guitar parts in their totality. You weren't, and I think that's also true of the way you learned guitar, is you were less focused on one lead or one guitar part, but more about like trying to encompass the same song. And in fact, sometimes I think you were learning to play songs in ways that you were, you were trying to play the whole song at once. That's right, yeah. That's <laughs> I think exactly that helped right. form your style. No, that's exactly right, yeah. Well, when I was learning as a little kid, 10 or 11, uh, I would listen to records by Mott the Hoople. They were always 45s, because I, I was into hooks and sort of succinct and brilliant thing that a 45 would do. And these little symphonic, you know, three and a half minutes of symphonic pop music. But because I was learning the guitar, I wanted to do all of that on the guitar. So I appropriated a lot of what I was hearing. And I was very lucky. You know, I, mean, I know like all our lives, are, <laughs> by definition, are, you know, s- subjective. But I was very lucky that being a little teeny bopper, you know, starting so young at 9, 10, 11, and um, the times that coincided with... Um, 1970, 1971, 72, 73, um, this bubblegum, as it became known music in the UK, we kind of got almost all the best of the American stuff. So, you know, we got Sparks in the charts and um, there was all these great British bands and there was David Bowie and Roxy Music and all that. That's when I learned to play. I I learned to play uh, listening to all of those very eccentric records that were built on very uh, radical guitars. You know, if you listen to the early Sparks records or you and Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, all that, all those Bowie albums, they were hits. They were in the charts. I would hear those those records before going to school in the morning. That was what you would hear in the background, and they all had outrageous guitar playing on it. And I was listening to, but they'd also have string arrangements and the organ would come in in the second verse and then some background vocals would come in on the second chorus and then there would be a stop going into the coda and I was studying all of that. I was studying it. I absolutely became an expert and a student rather of the way those records went together and that is a buzz for me. That crossed with this absolute obsession with the guitar and a flair for it you know a knack for being out of play but luckily because i was such a little teeny bopper obsessed with pop it stopped me getting too into led zeppelin and deep purple and going down that kind of blues thing yeah you said that you were really averse to anything with wizards in it and that kind of thing (laughs) (laughs) these days i've mellowed a little bit and and i'm I'm partial to a little bit of flute now and again (laughs) and those like late 60s um cop shows and stuff like that but um Oh yeah, I mean like Jethro Tull and and all of that business was. It was just also very unsexy music. Yeah, and there was no girls involved in the, in the audience, and which wasn't a good sign for me ever. Still isn't, and uh, I was never really into that lad rock thing. It was just too testosterone and boyish. I was never never really into that. I grew up really really tight with my sister, who was only eleven months my junior, and she would never let me get away with the wizards and 
organs and ugh, all of that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> T-Rex was a really big deal for you. Yeah, T-Rex was, well, the thing was it was eccentric as well. You know, it was a lot of, um, I have this thing sometimes where I, I, I'll say pop music. I've had to modify it somewhat in the last 10 years. I understand that because pop has now well and truly come to mean something other than what I, I mean it as being. But um, pop to me had a lot of femininity in it. It was very liberating. Again, it's subjective and to do with the times that I was growing up with. But I actually think this thing I'm talking about, I think a lot of people in the 90s can say the same and maybe people that got into the Smiths as 12, 13, 14, 15 as well. We maybe, not maybe, we were aware that we were doing it and we were very proud of it. Making it kind of uh, androgynous and eccentric. You know, the start of Sheila Take a Bow, for instance, is that brass band. Well, we wrote that as a single. And we just thought, well, this is going to be strange on the radio. And that was all the more reason to do it. And um, we felt that the kids who followed us um, liked those eccentricities and that we weren't playing safe. Because really, had we been on a major record company and if we didn't have any balls, we would have not had that on the front of a single. And we made loads of decisions like that. They were always tipped onto the side of, is this eccentric, therefore interesting, and messing with the kind of commercial idiom somewhat. And all of that is why I romanticise pop, what pop can be. I'm sure there are good examples of it right now. I mean, I think Kendrick Lamar is a great pop artist, you know, because he's bringing not the obvious. Just his voice alone, you know, is, is... right down the line you know it's between it's just great it's got a kind of uh, sensuality to it i think and his vibe does as well um so there were still some people doing it i think yeah yeah yeah's are a great pop group so that's that's my terminology i'm sort of sticking with it really your guitar style tracing it in the book is really interesting because you played all sorts of stuff yeah including some very traditional rock and roll stuff you played along with stones records and I was amazed you you were in a band that covered American Girl by Tom Petty. Yeah. Uh, so there's yeah. just all sorts of steps along the way, but you crystallized it all into, you know, one of the greatest and most singular guitar styles. So, yeah. I mean, what were the steps in your mind to kind of crystallize the style that you've expanded upon and done a lot of things with, but it still is often recognizable as what you well, do? Thank you. Uh, well, I appreciate that, um, that, that you're saying that, and I'm glad that, you know, what I've done has made that impression and that's the vibe I put out. You know what? It would almost be easier to say what I rejected because um, if something sounded too bluesy, it sounded just too elemental to me. It didn't have all the things I was just talking about before. It didn't have sensuality in it. It didn't have eccentricity in it. It, it earnest regular guy rock which was the staple of that was being fed to boys who were interested in playing the guitar of my age of my era just before punk there were some things that were outside of that that i sought out and the smarter of my mates were doing the same so things like bebop deluxe this guy bill nelson we we try to seek out the things that weren't elemental meat and potatoes you know, boring, straight stuff. But, um, you know, you mentioned, yeah, the band I was in, we did American Girl. I mean, that was like The Strokes 35 years before The Strokes. And um, it's a great pop song. 
uh, it's a great pop arrangement and luckily again you know when I really started getting it together at 15 I came of age when punk was happening but new wave was happening which to older people was a little bit of a a kind of misnomer or it was a, a corporate dirty word but you know what for me at 14 15 I liked Because the Night but I, I mean I already was really a big Patti Smith fan but I like that she made a commercial record it's a, it's a great sounding song and um, Blondie hit. So for me, this thing of arrangements and the great pop gesture, the great pop sound, it was all fair game. However, I also was very in- serious about, and this is something that's still with me to this day, where it all came from. You know, so that really fired my interest in, all right, so where's the, Patti Smith's doing Ro- Be My Baby by the Ronettes? Isn't that some kind of like bubblegum record from the 60s? Right, okay, so I got into that. And then I got into Phil Spector. And, you know, one of the things about pop culture so great is that, you know, your heroes turn you on to... It's an education, you know. I'm an autodidact, you know, in, in every sense of the word. So, so I taught myself. And when I used to bunk off school, I used to go and read the music press. And so I'd find out about literature and I'd find out about all these, this whole sea of influences. I found out about William Burroughs. From David Bowie, I found out about um, Rambo from Patti Smith and then blah, 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 on, on and on it goes. But I also found out about where the music comes from. So when I got into Neil Young, next step, go deeper, find out about Bert Janch from Pentangle. That spoke to me, got really into that. Go deeper, find out about Martin Carthy, find out about the Watersons. Just go as deep as you can until you just get to the bottom of it. Absorb what you can, so a big part of my guitar technique to come back to playing is folk music. Mm. The psychedelic aspect of it. If you listen to Sunburned Hand of Man or those psychacs that were happening in the early 2000s, some of that can sound a little bit like what I was doing in the Smiths. Some of my acoustic playing is psych folk. I got that from spending maybe three month period absolutely absorbing myself in Bert Janch and Roy Harper. So everything is fair game for me as long as it isn't straight. You said that when people started making Roger McGuinn comparisons, you actually hadn't heard that much Birds and then went back and yeah. absorbed some of that. Same with High Life, man. Journalists, you know, it's interesting when, when we came out on the Smiths, people were making these assumptions, I guess because I played the Rickenbacker and that's a whole other story, but that I was really into the Birds. Uh, also, to be fair, there was a bit of a movement of people in Scotland and that they were being cited but I only, I think I only knew Mr Tambourine Man and Turn 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 so that's the interesting thing about being commented on I kind of went okay I better check this out <laughs> and what was useful to me I kept and what was not useful I, I lost the best example is is that when this charming man came out uh, quite a few reviewers mentioned King Sunny a day I, I was I didn't have the skill and the knowledge to be to be fair and I wasn't that hip to be influenced by high life. Let's hear that intro for a second. That is crazy because even now, uh, I still assumed <laughs> that, it, that it was influenced by high life because it sounds yeah. tremendously like it. Completely accidental. I think it's because I'm Irish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the only Irish high life musician. <laughs> 
No, I think it's to do with eccentricity of of Irish music. That's with like the the sort of the modes and of of our, the the sort of Celtic. Yeah, I feel think. Of the... Yeah, I think it's to do with the accidental Celtic assimilation. Yeah. So it's sort of like a parallel evolution thing, like the same animal evolves on two different continents, that kind of thing. You know, that's yeah. a crazy mental picture there, like a leprechaun in South Af- <laughs> a South African leprechaun. <laughs> That is wild. So, you know, maybe Vampire Weekend rather than ripping off High Life actually just ripped off that one song by you. We don't know. You never know. That, but, do you know, also, you know, again, it's a good example of, uh, it is a fact that um, I was playing the sound of my feelings. And um, at that moment, and quite often, I was a very exuberant little dude. And I, was, I had reason to be exuberant. I was in a band that I absolutely adored, with people I absolutely adored. It was in a situation that I'd been, felt I was born for. It was always work, but I've never been work shy. And, um, you know, if you listen to some of that really um, exuberant music that's in the Smiths, I listen to it, I go, God, it's it's a wonder I didn't explode with joy. Mm. But that's the way I was feeling. And I was, I, partly I was feeling because me and my band and my, my mates were making a, f- a record in the studio and we were sounding pretty damn good. And I was almost like, I, I don't know whether the guys, the other guys had put it into these terms, but I was like the walking human barometer of how the four of us was feeling, good and bad. Mm. I internalised it all. And um, I think that's quite, that says quite a lot of good things about the band, really, because quite a lot of it is very, very positive. So your solo album, called The Comet, definitely gets into some darker moods. There is a genuinely spooky song called Walk Into The Sea. Let's hear that one. Yeah, so just, where did the vibe, That it really struck me, the vibe of that one. Well, um, the, the thing with the record was that I was really led by my emotions and uh, the whole of the album, I was following out how I was feeling and um, I didn't want to directly discuss Brexit or Donald Trump or anything like that, but um, I think a lot of uh, adults will relate to, uh, I think I was feeling kind of emotionally fairly shell-shocked so as I was writing music I was unintentionally and uh, unbeknownst to me I was making music that felt that way and um, Walking to the Sea is one of those tracks and um, I also had been reading recently uh, about funny again you know talking about Africa but uh, reading about these baptism and um, so the idea of rebirth was in my mind again I I probably just sort of tend to kind of uh, veer towards trying to find some positives as a person. And so I just decided to come up with the narrative of um, about being reborn. But what it is, you know, because I realised afterwards when I wrote this song, Walk Into The Sea, that it actually looks like a suicide note. Mm. But um, in fact, what it is, the story is of of me going climbing on these rocks and clambering over the rocks and going for it, diving into the sea in the hope of being reborn. So it's very, very metaphorical, obviously. And the key line in the song is that hope breaks on me. I think that's what I was looking for. And it seemed to go with the music. And um, it all happened in... uh, in the space of a few days that I didn't really have too much time to second guess myself. So it's a very dramatic song and there's quite a few very dramatic songs on on the record, but that one particularly is dramatic. But as I say, it was only two weeks later or so that I realised that some people could see that title and it seemed like you're trying to off yourself when in fact it's the opposite. (laughs) 
did the Hans Zimmer experience, and, and for people who don't know, you collaborated with him on the, the soundtrack yeah. to Inception and a bunch of other things. That's a whole different world. Did you talk about a sense of drama and atmosphere? Yeah. How, what, what did you learn from, from working with him? I learned from to reacquaint myself and be totally okay with the most melodic and dramatic and emotive things that I do. That's what Hans brings me in for. I trust him enough that I think, okay, well, if that's what he wants, if that's what he thinks is the gold in me, if you like, as a musician, then um, I'll go with it. And that's where he influenced Walking to the Sea. People have asked me about it because it has strings on it and it's orchestral and sounds dramatic and like a cinematic. Um, but that's been the biggest influence that Hans has brought to my career, that he's trying to get that out of me all the time. The kind of, if it's sad, it's really sad. If it's uplifting, mm. it's really uplifting. Because I'll just get off on some like new wave kind of art rock thing every day, all day long if I can. But he's kind of always wanting me to play emotionally all the time. Let's get, Johnny, if you get a 12 string, get a 12 string, you know, so. What should we hear from your work with him? Let's hear um, Time off Inception. crazy thing is after after reading your book and reading Morrissey's book and reading a whole bunch of stuff here's something I still don't understand and I and then I was trying to see if I was the only one who doesn't understand this and no it actually seems to be a, a common thing no one it's it's a simple thing the real reason that the Smiths broke up became less clear to me <laughs> reading these two books the way it comes off is that it was all basically a miscommunication that you were reported to have left the Smiths and therefore you ended up, fuck it, I'm leaving the Smiths, which just yeah. seems insane. Yeah, but if you're going <laughs> to, if, if, you, if you're going to put it down to what you read, you'd need to have an entire book that was just dedicated to the breakup of the band. And I ain't going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and who wants to, who wants, well, I guess there's some people who want to read that. I think other actually there's a lot of people, people want to read that. Other afraid. people have had a go at it yeah. and w without knowing what they're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, that the miscommunication is just one facet of it, though, isn't it? It's, you know, so the band wouldn't break up just because of miscommunication. It has to be, you know, the end. I wouldn't have left my own band that I formed and put my life into just because of a misunderstanding. You know, there's, it, it was untenable, is the word, isn't it? And, you know, I felt like I was left no choice, and that's fine. That's absolutely right. Um, yes, it was very sad, but it was meant to be. Why was it untenable? I mean, one thing that's unspoken is you were doing so much work. And sometimes instead of being grateful <laughs> to the person who's doing so much work, who's arranging everything and staying and not sleeping for weeks to, yeah. to do all this stuff, sometimes instead of being grateful, sometimes people are resentful, whether it's in the context of a band or in another context. I, I yeah, sort of well, felt that might have been asked. Yeah. Well, maybe that was the case. You know, I don't know about that. There was a probably a time in my life when I... I would have felt that. I don't really feel that now. As an adult now, I kind of feel like when things come to an end, are meant to come to an end, all kinds of mad shit happens. People will know what I'm talking about with relationships and in jobs. And even if you want to, you know, want to move out your apartment, you just start turning against it, you know. So things kind of start breaking down when they're not, when, when they've run out of shelf life. You know, as a, as a mature adult, that's, the way I see things happening, you know, when things aren't meant to be, they just, they break down like a cogs in a machine stop working. They stop being harmonious. 
and um, it's the same in bands as it is in relationships and as it is in jobs. It's a fact of life, I think. So what, without beating it, <laughs> I still don't feel like, what, was it a personality thing or was it just... Oh, yeah, it was all of the yeah. above, yeah. All of the above, just different people, you know. So chemistry was, the. I think, the differences in personalities are what often make for interesting chemistry. And then inevitably, you know, the differences in personality comes a point when those things are going to stop forward motion, I guess. And, you know, also, I, I suppose as well, like me and Morrissey just saw our futures differently. How so? Well, I, I just didn't see my future being in that group anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very circular uh, statement. Yeah, well, I mean, but, well, you know what? I've got to get to a sound check. I don't want to be here till like, for the next five hours. <laughs> the issue of you doing outside projects seems to have, which in your telling isn't a big deal at all, like working with Brian Ferry and stuff, that that was nothing to you at the time, and yet it seems seems to have been very hurtful to Morrissey, apparently. Ah, well, you have to ask him about that. But anyway, that's his account, is that... Uh, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. well, you know, maybe so. Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with it. If that's what he says, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with it. Fine. You know, it's, it's, so what? As we've said, I mean, it's hard to imagine a better outcome for someone who lost their amazing band at such a young age. You were, what, 23? Uh, Yeah. 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 And, I mean, that's when your life is just getting started. And yeah. it, and it, it could have gone a lot of different ways. Yeah, but... But you've had this amazing career. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to work out that way. But I don't really... I, I didn't really feel like I lost my band because somewhere along the line... And they see, that's a kind of... That's a sort of projection that people kind of put on the Smiths because a big part of that was inside me was... I probably knew that I always wanted to work with a lot of different people. Before the Smiths' first record came out, I did a session with Bernard Sumner. So... There was a clue right there, and that was because I'm a musician, and I'm, in some ways I'm, I'm like a kind of a, a sort of almost archetypal musician that I like to play with people, I like to learn. And um, from that very first session that I did, when Bernard Sumner was producing a factory band, I walked in there, and um, I walked in there, and it sounded like I'd walked into some the future, not necessarily my future, but he was working. <laughs> he was working with sequences on with a band called Section Twenty Five on a song called A View From A Hilltop. He was doing a remix of that. When I walked in that studio, as I say, the Smiths hadn't even put the first record out, and I heard A View From A Hilltop, the remix of it. That was next level psychedelic electro music. So I was excited when I heard that that, that Bernard was working on. And so it was worth me walking in the studio just for that. So I'm a musician, so I'm like, 35 years later, I remember what that feels like. Mm. When I worked with Kirsty McCall on many, many songs, her process of recording backing vocals and her process of writing lyrics, which I was privy to, was something that I would never give up. So this is my juice because I'm a musician, so me working on other projects, that's my vision, you see. I'm sorry if, you know, some people 35 years later go, yeah, but you were supposed to stay stood against the wall <laughs> with the same haircut as the other guys. Well, that, maybe their vision needs to sort of widen a little bit and start thinking a bit more like a musician. Because if they want to know what I think, I think like a musician. And that was my instinct, you see. So me working with other bands and, and after the Smiths, doing what I've done was fantastic. It was just being a guitar player. And as I said uh, a while back now, I feel like as a guitar player, I, I've had the best job of 
almost any guitar player. I've been very, very blessed, but, you know, I've had to tough it out a little bit sometimes to do that. One thing I felt that I, I never heard from you in the book was a feeling that some people might get of like fear of, oh my God, what am I going to do now? How am I, is this going to be able to keep going? Because essentially yeah. there's a certain point when you're, and you know, obviously you've had the, the, and, and, and modest mouse and you, there's just this period of essentially you're, you're like a, a, an extraordinarily high level freelancer, you know? And so there's, you didn't have a steady gig, but there never seemed to be fear of where the next thing is coming from. Yeah. Well, Mm. I don't think being in see the the let me see when I joined the the it was nineteen eighty eight okay so and then when I left the the it was late nineteen ninety two so well that's four and a half years I don't really feel like a freelancer uh, the the didn't really feel like a freelancing gig and I think if you ask Matt Johnson and James Ella and um, David Palmer who was in the band when they woke up in the morning for f- four and a half years who the guitarist in their band was. So well, Johnny's the guitarist in right. the band. Well, I sort of mean in between so, these things, when you weren't so, in electronic, then when you weren't in, you know. I was yeah. in electronic from, um, what was electronic from? So electronic formed in 88, okay, same time as the, the was in the, the, and finished, I guess, what, 2000, 2001, I think. So uh, that's, I, I don't know, you have to do the math, it's like nine, eight or nine years or something. That's kind of a, that's a long freelance gig. I wish yeah. I'd been paid like a freelancer. <laughs> so I don't really feel like, um, no, I just feel like um, a musician who'd been in a lot of bands, you know, which I felt like a musician when I was a kid. I felt like a kid who'd been in a lot of bands. Now I'm an adult who's been in a lot of bands. That's the way I feel. Let's hear Getting Away With It by Electronic. I think one of your biggest hits in America. Probably the biggest, yeah. yeah. What, what do you remember about that specific song coming out? The thing with getting away with it was that um, I remember probably the three or four hours that it came together because it was me and Bernard Sumner and Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe in a room. And it was the first time we'd met. And, um, yeah, just like if you meet interesting people in a bar or in a restaurant or at a gig or whatever, uh, you remember that, but we happened to be writing a song whilst we were meeting. Uh, it was one of the rare occasions when a musician's working in the studio with the with a window in it, and it was a summer's evening, mm. so it, it was a sun-filled room with this really great, beautiful, excitable atmosphere between, I want to say, five in the evening and ten o'clock before we went out to the Hacienda. Um, so it was this feeling of all of the above and we were about to go out to the Hacienda on a Saturday night and we just we just written this hit that's what I remember about getting away with it mm. so it's uh, that was a good moment Johnny one of the first things you did post Smith was record with Talking Heads yeah and uh, when uh, Isaac Brock uh, recruited you for Modest Mouse he actually cited that stuff as his favorite stuff he did yeah uh, and I, I thought it was interesting yeah, I forgot which song it was but when you were I think it was the first thing you tried to record for them you were given a track and at first you, it was just sort of terrifying you went blank trying to figure out what to play on it oh with the Talking Heads with the Talking Heads that yeah. was yeah yeah it was um, it was the song that was the single Nothing But Flowers Yeah, well, you, you mentioned fear before. Uh, that was that was a that was a fearful uh, situation, partly because I was so young, and um, I doubt I would be that quite that fearful now. But I think it was a healthy, creative moment of uh, fear. 
because it was just a bass line and a, and a drum groove and I was expected to, uh, I think blank canvas was the, the phrase that was used. Yeah, did you get publishing on that? Because <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you know, for me, for, I was just buzzing about being on the lead guitarist on a Talking Heads song, and right. I, I still am really. But um, yeah, I don't, it didn't have any singing on it. Well, no uh, wonder you panicked. You had to basically compose a huge part of a song yeah, on the spot. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I was playing on top of uh, Tom Tom Club, I guess, you know, and I went for a walk. I just froze, right? And I was like, oh, shit, yeah, shit, I'm not hearing anything. Damn, 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 damn. And I just went for a walk around the block, and I thought, oh, man, I've lost it. I've lost it. It's finally mm. come, you know, at the grand old age of 23. <laughs> I've <laughs> lost my mojo, and um, I just kind of just plugged in and just decided to just be myself. I was like, I just need to... I was being too respectful in a way. You know, I was being too humble, almost, so there you go. There's a lesson for you. Don't get too humble, folks. <laughs> Other than perhaps that moment, it doesn't seem like the riffs and ideas ever stop flowing from you. You said the the first time you jammed with... I love the story of the first time you kind of jammed with Isaac Brock. And he's like, do you have a riff? And you, you had a riff. And then yeah. you kept having riffs. And you kept you were just yeah. writing and writing. It, is it that way for you? Is it sort of a, an, an ever-flowing fountain? No. I <laughs> uh, really, really wish it was. No. Like I said to you a while back, you know, I was saying to you, like, I used to think like a 15-year-old had been in a lot of bands when I was 15. And so when I was when I got to play with Modest Mouse at first night, because I'd been a 15-year-old, he'd been in loads of bands, I learned at that time that if you're going to walk into a room with a bunch of people who want you to write some songs, and ah. you, then you better have a few riffs with you. In a way, it's just being professional and being smart and pragmatic. Now, that they might not work, but I had a few things I'm, I'm always working on and that I hope are going to turn into songs. And... Isaac's presence and that scenario, just me and him very late at night, me all woozy from jet lag and him with this big jug of wine and being very sort of, you know, forceful, made me play that riff, which became Dashboard by Modest Mouse in a very uh, specific way. You know, I played it really up-tempo and really choppy and it just kind of came together, maybe because we've been playing that way for 20 minutes, I don't know. Um, that's how that happens. And then when... Um, so when we came, when when I came to jam with the Cribs for the first time, with the idea just being that we um, that we would just put out a forty-five, and it's EP forty-five with three or four songs on it. For a few days before, I just um, crammed what riffs have I got, you know, what have I got, try and come up with something, try and put them onto my phone, just in case, you know. And this is all stuff that I learned at 14, 15, 16. But now, I mean, you, you know, but just like any other musician will tell you, like, you hope the riffs flow. Mm. You know, in my book, there's there not really much point in me talking about the times nothing happened. Because right. you end up just with some <laughs> blank pages, right? So, uh, but there's plenty of times, like on this new record, Call the Comet, as I said, I, w I went in there with... I had one song which was Spiral Cities because we'd been playing it live and it had gone down well. So I was like, okay, that's going on the record, you know, because I don't want it to be a B-side. It's too good. Aside from that, blank zeros mm. and ones. Mm. And I hoped, and this is the way I live my life, I'm looking for inspiration and I'm looking for riffs. I'm looking for riffs. I'm looking for tunes. I'm looking, looking for titles. I'm looking for hooks. I'm a songwriter, so I'm, I'm always I'm hopefully going back to the world, trying to fish, hopefully all, all the time. What's cool is that I'm still hearing stuff from you that's genuinely surprising. There's a you play this wild guitar solo on uh, I think it's the song Hey Angel. Yeah, uh, it almost reminded me of Latter Day Nils Lofgren. I know you used to listen to him. I don't know if yeah. that's yeah. Oh well, I'll take that. Yeah, 
Yeah, because well, Nils is an amazing, fine guitar player. And if you go back through that, what Nils, what, if it reminds you of Nils, and we're talking Jimi Hendrix, really. And um, yeah, it's that solo is, is something I really like. Uh, I, I just, luckily, I got it off in a couple of takes. It wasn't like something technically tricky. It sounds it, but I, I wanted to do something really psychedelic and also radical as well. You know, there's not too many backwards in your face, real loud solos, and particularly on indie rock records. So I'm glad that has stood out. Oh, I didn't even clock it as backwards. That that helps explain it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then one of the things about your solo tool, which everyone is loving, is is you are singing Smith songs. Is there any psychological? barrier that you had to overcome or anything like that to to get comfortable with the idea of that or is it just no. kind of straight ahead for you no no i'm yeah there isn't i mean if, i wouldn't do it if there was really it would just because it'd just be too much hassle you know i guess i got very lucky with that right because almost but again it's this thing of like playing with other musicians i don't know i had that mentality i wouldn't have picked up the phone to neil finn in whenever that was 2003 four i was recovering from a pretty serious illness I got pleurisy in the early 2000s and I really was not supposed to be working. But Neil Finn invited me over to New Zealand and he just assumed I was going to sing There Is A Light That Never Goes Out because it was a big song, right? Now, I, I arrived there with all of this Smith's baggage, which a lot of people seem to still be carrying around, who aren't, weren't even in the group. And um, I realised in that instant when I balked at his suggestion and he, he looked at me a little quizzically, well, I kind of was like, oh, what do you mean? Sacred cow. I realised that I was just being just too precious. It's music. This is bullshit. And I went out on the stage with Neil. And because he's such a good singer and he loves the song, he sang it. But at the sound check, I sang it. And then we did it. And um, again, I guess now I'm looking back on it, it never really occurred to me before. But because I... I act in the way I do and interact with other musicians and I follow the music, I would maybe have not got that opportunity to be to be on a stage with Neil Finn and Eddie Vedder, Ed O'Brien from Radiohead, Lisa Germano. They're above that shit. You know, I would have been just like some precious, you know, a churlish big baby. I'd have not done it. So I did it and the audience reacted in such a beautiful way. And in, in a way I've got, I think I mentioned that in the book, I've, I've got Neil to thank for that because he, you know, he gave me that gift really of just puncturing that nonsense. But that's because I'm a musician and I spend my time hanging out with musicians. Now he's in Fleetwood Mac, so you just never know how these things are going to turn Hey, out. you know what? Lucky Fleetwood Mac. Absolutely. Johnny Marr, thank you so much for being here. That's all right. This has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back here on Sirius XM Volume next Friday on Channel 106 at 1 p.m. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.